Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. I know that generating pipeline is top of mind for everyone in sales as we enter the new quarter and the new year. So for this week's episode, we're going to replay a webinar that I hosted a couple months ago with Kyle Coleman, VP over at Clary. And what we're going to focus on are the seven laws for highly effective sales emails. Here at Gong, we analyzed over 300,000 sales emails and started to uncover some really counterintuitive and interesting insights, things that you can use to book more meetings, whether you're reaching out to cold prospects or moving deals forward in pipeline. After you check out the session, you'll be writing unignorable emails and booking more meetings with less touch points. Hope you enjoy it. My name is Kyle Coleman. I am a VP of growth and enablement here at Clary. I've been working with SDR teams for about eight years or so and, you know, was an SDR at a company called Looker, a business intelligence analytics tool based in California and grew that SDR team up to about 65 people globally over the course of about six or so years and then jumped over to Clary. And now I lead our SDR team, as well as demand generation and marketing operations and sales enablement. So a pretty wide purview, but an important one to have all under the same umbrella and just um, really useful to create and accelerate revenue. So all of the principles that we're going to be talking about today translate to pretty much every component of my job, um, which is the demand gen side. So how to write good marketing emails. I know that's near and dear to uh, Devin's heart as well, but also you know, SDR, obviously, and then enablement as well, because we're going to talk about not just how to get a foot in the door from a meeting uh, maker standpoint, account penetration standpoint, but also best practices for moving deals down the funnel. So I'm really excited about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always talk about Kyle, my friend who's an SDR turned VP, because not, not too many people have done it from been in the trenches and now receiving uh, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands. Uh, of cold email. So uh, fantastic. Let's get into our agenda. We'll move quickly here so we can get time into the laws themselves. And so really how this came about was uh, you might have noticed or you might have been at the last session with Kyle and I, where we covered some of the data back insights that Gong had recently found this year. And so what we did at Gong was we did another round of insights and we did a lot of testing. And what we found were seven laws of highly effective sales emails. I want to get right into the seven laws because I think those are the most important for today and probably why you signed up for this session. And so, like I said, we'll go through each of those. We've got some groundbreaking data and also some email examples that Kyle will walk us through. Finally, we have a giveaway. So if you see anything, if you see like a takeaway, uh, interesting fact, you know, something, you want to screen cap it because later we're going to have a giveaway. We're going to want to use that screenshot. So don't be afraid to take the screenshot. We've got to give away at the end. Now about this, this content. So 306 billion emails, billion emails sent out every single day. 
that is a staggering amount. It's a, it's an ocean of noise. And so what you need to do, your job as an SDR, as an AE, is find ways to break through that noise. And so what we're going to talk about today are strategies for breaking through that noise. And now you see that that center box here, the average person receives 120 emails every single day. I know the first thing that I do when I pop over my inbox in the morning is just like rapid fire on the archive button, just yeah. getting rid of all the things I can, unsubscribing from all the things I didn't even know I subscribed to, just like trying yes. to get the stuff out of my out of out of my brain so that I can focus on the things I need to focus on. Um, and there are important things, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go through. There are important strategies to use to not get auto deleted. So we'll we'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. And then to that point, only a quarter of these emails are ever opened. So you need to uh, do whatever you can to make your email stand out, not just in the body content, but in the subject line and that first line that you send to make sure that your email gets open. Because guess what? If they're not opening your email, they're not responding to your email. And that's a major problem. You, you know what we're all about in sales. We want to set more meetings. If you're trying to do pipeline gen, we want to move deals f uh, forward faster once we get them in the pipeline. And then ideally we get them to that close signature as often as possible. And I'll also, uh, I'll do a disclaimer here. This, these are all going to be data back and we'll cover the data. But I also want to implore you to test these things yourselves. Everything that we covered today are best practices because they've worked for me, they've worked for Kyle, and we've seen a large set of data that says that these work. But at the same time, you always want to do your own A-B testing and make sure that it's right for you, your approach, and your audience. So there's my disclaimer. But law number one, and I've seen this time and time again, is don't use ROI in cold emails. And here's an example of that, right? You're reaching out to someone and you're saying, uh, you know, hey, Devin, my company is going to help you uh, increase revenue 14%, or we're gonna help you uh, save, uh, you know, 20% of your team's time. And so what we did at Gong is we wanted to test this and see if this was true or not, because something I've done, I've done this multiple times, Kyle, as, as a seller, and I've noticed as I'm starting to get more prospecting emails, it doesn't, it didn't land with me. I I'm not feeling compelled by these stats. And so what we did at Gong, and if you're new to Gong, I'll explain to you really quickly uh, what Gong Labs is, which is our data, our data team. And so what we do is we look at all of the different sales interactions that are captured on Gong's revenue intelligence platform. So that's emails like today, but also includes phone calls and web conferencing meetings. And so what we do is I work with a team of data scientists and researchers. Uh, I think I'm the only one on the team without a PhD or two. And they help me comb through all these different sales interactions. And we start to find trends and best practices, things that work and things that don't. Some of examples are the best way to start a cold call. Uh, others are, is it good or bad or harmful to curse on a sales call? That's another report we did back in January. And so for this one, what we did is we broke apart emails that are used, cold emails that use ROI versus emails that don't use ROI language. And the ROI language is specifically ROI and specifically things like 2X or 4X or 100% increase, those types of things. And so we broke them apart and we tested. And what we wanted to look at was the success. And success was defined by was a meeting booked within 10 days. So you're not going to see, you know, a response rate because if someone, you know, response rates can be misleading. You can get an unsubscribe. You can get a kick rocks. Don't talk to me. And that might be misconstrued as success. And so here's what we found. Not using ROI language 
or I should say another way, using ROI language had a 15% decrease in success rates. So this might be surprising. What was interesting to me, Colin, I'd like to hear from you because you're at that VP level is when I talk to sellers, people in the trenches, practitioners, as we call them now, they're like, yeah, of course, I'm going to hit them with the hard facts. Like this is going to like, it's, it's compelling. You cannot argue data. I'm literally showing data to hundreds of people right now. How can you argue with it? But when I talk to senior leaders, it was the complete opposite. They're like, yeah, that's just a stat. It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't feel real to me and it doesn't work. So I delete it. So I'd love to hear from you if, you know, this is something you teach, if this was surprising and then you as a recipient, how, how you feel about this? It's surprising for the reasons you mentioned, Evan, like I'm a data guy. I, I you know, cut my teeth at a data company and you would think that the hard facts are going to win people over more so than the opinions or the qualitative facts or the, we do this better than XYZ competitor. But and when I started receiving more of these emails, it always, always my reaction to them is a complete eye roll because my initial response is, you and I have never talked. Like, you don't even know what our priorities are. You don't even know how we make money. You don't know what our initiatives are, what strategies we're pursuing. Like, you don't know what value you're going to be able to add to us. Or rather, you don't know as precisely that value that you're going to add to us. And a lot of the times, uh, so that's one reaction is like, you don't actually know me or my business well enough to say this with any real certainty. So I, it's, it actually does more harm than good, I found. And then the second thing is that a lot of times the ROI numbers that are issued in these cold emails are astronomical. And for that reason, unbelievable. I couldn't find the email this time for this presentation, but there was one where I kid you not, somebody promised me 21,000 times ROI. And I was like, <laughs> you're going to make me a couple billion dollars? Like, I don't understand this. Um, so uh, avoid it. it. It does more harm than good. It's, it's more discrediting than it is affirming of what you're doing here. And it really is not about them. It really is about you. You're trying to make it about them. You're trying to make it sneaky, like we're going to save you this much. But really, you're just tooting your own horn. And we'll get to this in some of the later laws here. But you really want your cold outreach focused on them. So while it seems like it's a good idea, hold it in reserve until you actually are further down that sales cycle where you have more time to investigate their business. You have more time to understand the revenue model. You have firmer ground to stand on to say, now that I know you, now that you have collaborated on what the inputs are from our, our, for our ROI model, now I can give you something that is a, has a, has, uh, carries a bit more weight and the data is a bit more believable. And so that would be my recommendation. Oh yeah, we have a quick uh, example here. And I think this is to you, Kyle. So in case folks are kind of curious like what this looks like in practice, maybe just cover this really quickly. Yeah, for sure. So it's the middle line that we're looking at. It's got two yellow arrows pointed at it. So it's, it's the, what I just mentioned. If you're increasing my leads by 40%, how on earth do you know that that's 10 times my ROI? Like that to me just seems like you're throwing numbers out there to get my attention. And there's no validity to that statement whatsoever. Um, and so I, I really just don't believe this at all. I have no reason to believe this. And so this type of email to me, it's not about me. Like I said before, I have no, there's no compelling reason for me to respond. So this is the type of thing that you may think is customized. You may think is personalized, but really, yeah, uh, Danny just said in the chat, it makes my eyes glaze over. It's the immediate scan and archive um, sort of motion that <laughs> unfortunately I'm pretty well trained in at this point. Um, so, you know, if, we're going to talk a lot about this, but use that real estate, use these emails to show me that you've actually done some research about myself or my company instead of just this blanket statement that has no real backing, no real validity.
you should know your product well enough. You should know the persona that you're reaching out to well enough to issue a value statement to them that carries more weight. How are you going to help somebody who's in my role, somebody who leads a demand gen team, an SDR team, an enablement team? How have you helped that person before? Or can you give me some sort of content that educates me about what your product or solution does or how you've helped another person or another company similar to me or mine? So you need to, your role needs to be one of educator in these early emails that you're sending to people and not just browbeating the info meeting. And so we'll talk about uh, the, the best way to continue a conversation or earn a conversation with rule number two. Loss aversion is another one I've seen a lot of success with, which is bringing up a problem they might not know. Like, hey, there's something going on in your org you might be missing. We've seen, I've talked to other leaders like you. They've, they, you know, they didn't know this was happening. We opened their eyes and then this is what they saw. Right. Or also just putting them kind of in the driver's seat of a story. We're saying, hey, we, you know, this is like, kind of like we said, oh, this is how we've helped people. This is what they're trying to do. This is what they, you know, the obstacles they ran into and they were unable to. Here's how we remove that. Would you be interested in learning how that would apply to you? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's jump over to law number two. Don't ask for time and cold outreach. Now I'm going to pause. It's probably going to be a small fire starting in the chats because a lot of people like myself were coached throughout my entire career to always ask for time and not only to always ask for time, but to ask for a specific time. And so that would be things like, you know, Hey, Kyle, are you available at 4 PM on Thursday for 30 minutes? And the thought process was you're making it easy to say, Hey, I need to go straight to their calendar. I'll look if there's a white space or not. And I can tell Devin yes or no. That was kind of the mind frame there. Um, so what we did was we, I wanted to test it. All these things were things I was curious as a seller, like, is this really the best way? And I've sent hundreds, if not thousands of prospecting emails. And sometimes I use the, you know, ask for time. Sometimes I ask for interest, but I never really got a gauge of which one works. And so we did uh, some research on this and we looked again at a couple different things. So here's how it panned out. Now, what we did was the same set of emails, so around 300,000 emails, and we put them into three buckets. So the first one was the specific CTA. That's exactly what I just described. Are you available at this time for this amount of time? Option two was an open-ended CTA. Things like, are you open next week for a call? So I'm asking for time. I'm asking for a conversation, but I'm putting, uh, it's, you know, it's not too firm in terms of when or how long. And then the third bucket was interest which is saying, are you interested in this thing I'm talking about versus asking for time specifically? And I was really surprised by this. I really wasn't sure when we, you know, when I asked the research team to look at this, I had no idea what was going to come out. I wasn't too surprised that open-ended didn't work. It was a little loose. It doesn't really feel firm enough in either direction. Um, but here's what it came out to. And so, yeah, it's actually two times more successful to ask for interest instead of the specific CTA. And this was another one where I think sellers and you know, uh, senior leaders were kind of on different on different uh, side of the spectrum here because again, I had a lot of VPs reaching out and say, "Yeah, of course, I hate when people ask for time." So for me, I wasn't terribly surprised by this because, uh, again, the goal or the role of the outbounder is to create interest. It's to create. It's to educate. It's to create curiosity. It's to it's to show the person that you understand them well enough that they want to have a conversation with you. And so a lot of times what you're doing, what the best emailers are doing is they're basically creating this little tape for themselves 
that they should, that the recipient should care about them. So line one is personalized, it's why I'm reaching out to you. Line two is the value that I can provide. And then line three is, are you interested in learning more? And if they've done lines one and two well, then they should do a nice job of uh, creating that interest, you know, earning the right for a further conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I noticed some folks in the in the chat said, you know, I know a sales loft, and I think it was Jeremy Donovan reached out or uh, posted, and he was like, hey, we did a report, uh, and it was a larger data set, and they said, actually, we saw that it was asking for time was more successful. Uh, I was not surprised by this. Both reports can be accurate, they're different data sets. Uh, and if you look in the scientific community, there's people that uh, say the world is warming, there's people say the world's not warming up or for different reasons. So there's always going to be different views on you know these things. And so even though they're both data backed, uh, again, I always implore you to go A-B test this after today's session. Um, I've had folks after we reported this, uh, CRO specifically said, hey, we did the A-B test the next day, uh, interest versus specific CTA. Uh, we got five meetings with the interest CTA and none from specific. So he's like, I changed the playbook. And now that's what we do. So again, this is a great North Star for you to follow, but always go out and do your own, uh, do your own research, do your own, or not your own research, but do your own testing. And uh, I see some folks also asking for what this looks like in a, what the interest CTAs look like. Uh, so Nehal, if you want to post it, we actually have 43 uh, highly effective CTAs that you can use. And we'll go and put them in there now. Um, so this is an example of the type of email that, as Devin mentioned, he was trained to send. I certainly am guilty in my early SDR management days of training our team to send these types of emails because we thought that asking for a short amount of time made it a lower barrier. The person wouldn't be so concerned. However, time is the most precious resource that anybody has. And any bit of time that you're asking for without real justification for it, without, as I've mentioned before, without really earning it, makes it a pretty tough hill to climb. It makes it very difficult for me to say yes. So when I get an email like this, that, that it doesn't really offer any value, that doesn't really seem to show that they have done any research on me or my company or what I'm trying to do, what we as a company are trying to do, but they're just asking for time and they're making it easy because they give me their calendar link. Oh, thank you so much. Like, wh why would I do this? There's really no, there, there's nothing here that is justification for me spending time with this person. So that's what we're talking about here. Like you need to educate a little bit more. You need to show them that there's some, there's gonna be some value in the time that they spend with you, whether it's five minutes or 60 minutes, there needs to be uh, equal value that they're getting by giving you their time. Absolutely. I always, I always kind of laugh at the calendar link. I don't hate the calendar link. I only hate it in this scenario. Reminds me when people text me and they're like, call me. Like, what you, you reached out to me. Why don't you just call me? You know, why, why are you putting it on me to, to reach out? And so, yeah, I think calendar, calendar links, once you know someone are fantastic, Kyle's like, hey, let's talk about this session on Monday. Sends me a calendar link. That's easy because we're already interested in talking. I've already decided I want to invest time with Kyle. But for cold emails, I don't think we're there yet. All right, let's get to the next one here. And I believe we have a poll. Let's see if I timed it. We do. Okay, so, you know, Things in sales are very nuanced. What works in one scenario might or might not work in another scenario. So go ahead and jump over to the polls. If you're see, see chat, there's questions, there's polls, not for the election that's over with, at least I hope. Please don't start talking about the election. Uh, but in the polls, go ahead and type in the answer here. Now think about this, the buyer, your buyer just entered the sales cycle. 
which CTA should you use in the email? So imagine you know, you've had your discovery call. Now you're moving on to like the demo or presentation, let's say. Should you use the open-ended CTA, the specific CTA, or the interest CTA? I'd ask you, Kyle, but I have a feeling you already know because I think we've talked about it before. Is ask for time for in pipeline opportunities. I kind of gave it away a second ago when I was giving my Kyle explanation. When I was like, "Hey, what's Kyle and I already know we're interested." But yes. So uh, if you want to jump to the next slide real quick, we'll just cover the data. It's the same data set. We just looked for something different. We moved this. We moved the research from before and cold emails, so before the pipeline uh, sales site started, and moved it over to once you're in an opportunity. And as you see here. Specific CTA outperformed interest CTA by quite a bit, so it flipped, and then open-ended CTA even did you know better than interest. So you, you see quite a difference here. But I think the answer is pretty pretty straightforward, Kyle. Right? It's like your the interest CTA does not make sense because interest is already established, right? If someone already had a call or two or ten with you, I don't think it's as effective. It doesn't really make as much sense to say, hey, Kyle, are you interested in a proposal call? I think you want to drive it forward and say, hey, Kyle, how's Thursday look for us to talk about that proposal? That, that, that's that's how I'm reading this. Did you read this any differently? Was this surprising to you? I don't want SDRs to lose interest here because this is really important for any SDR who's not on a meeting booked or meeting completed comp plan, but is rather on like a sales qualified opportunity sort of comp plan where that meeting happens and you are still responsible, like your job isn't done. There's still work that you can do to get that meeting to be qualified. So you've probably got the meeting with maybe one person in a buying group, but typically there are over six or seven people in a buying group. And so what you need to do as an SDR is help your AE reach out to other members of that buying group. And now is the time where you can say, met with your colleague name, can we chat, you know, Tuesday at two to talk about, you know, the opportunity for X. And so you can be the one who's forcing the issue there once you've already got interest established, as Devin said, and you can help those opportunities move down the down the funnel. Same is true for all the AEs on the call here. As Devin mentioned, like you need to guide your buyers. Your buyers are very likely only making this decision one time versus you, who hopefully anyway, is making this sale many times. And so you need to show that you know the pathway that leads to success and you need to take the, the impetus upon yourself to chart out that path for them so that they understand the milestones and they don't have to think about what is next for them. You need to show them you understand your sales cycle well enough. You need to show them that you understand the value that you're bringing to them well enough to suggest specific next steps to keep your deals on the rails. I love that. It's exactly right. You want to lead them through the process and it shows confidence by telling them and inviting them along the way. There's a good question. Does this, do these rules apply regardless of the outreach channel, like text, video, social media, et cetera? So caveat, we only did this research for email, but I don't think it's a channel specific like distinction, right? It's a psychological thing. It's, are you, have, like, have you invested, uh, like, have you decided that you're interested in something? Because you decide if you're interested and then you decide if you want to invest your time. It goes in that order. And so that's why I think this would apply even if you're sending a video, if you're texting somebody. Uh, I think it applies across. But of course, like I've mentioned, test it for yourself. So this was actually a little surprising. So maybe, maybe you guys uh, in the chat have, have experienced this, but you know, you just had a discovery call with, let's say, a VP, one person. Then you have a follow-up call with that one person. And then they're like, this is fantastic. I'm going to introduce you to my four directors. We're going to have a group call. So you have the group call. That also goes well. 
And then afterwards, you send the follow-up email and no one responds. And then you follow up a couple of days later, no one responds. You're like, this is crazy. There's five people on that call that said this was a great call and it felt really good. Why is no one responding? Well, there's this weird phenomenon that happens with people. And what it is, is that there's actually this study they did where they had four people, uh, four or five people in a room. And all of these people were in on this test except for one. And so this test subject, what they did is they're all waiting. I think it was like in an inter- like waiting for an interview or something. And they and the uh, like scientists or the researchers that were doing this test started putting smoke underneath the door as though there was a fire. And what they did was they asked the four people who were in on it to not not acknowledge it, stay put, pretend everything is okay. And most of the people, the test subjects, they saw the fire. You can see them kind of looking around, and they don't do anything. Because what they do is the people in, in moments of uncertainty or when there's an action required, people look around to see, hey, are you going to respond first? Is this a real threat? Should I be moving? And so that's what I think happens on these multi-threaded group conversations, right? It's like if you ever have a bunch of people on a call and you say, hey, does anyone have any questions? You get radio silence because no one wants to be the first to move. Everyone's kind of looking around. And so we put some research behind it and we saw that response rates are highest when there's two people. And then once there's three participants or more on that thread, you start to see the response rates decline. And so my uh, bystander theory, thank you, Jessica. And so what it is, is, uh, and I had noticed I wanted to solve it. So I had started testing and I'm like, I'm going to hit a group message, let everyone see all the follow-up items that I promised. But then I would start single threading. Hey, Jane. Hey, Megan. Hey, Scott. Hey, Shannon. One-on-one. And I was getting many more responses. And then I was starting to build relationships faster and getting more next steps done on an individual basis. This is new, Kyle. I haven't actually shared this one with you before the session, so I'm curious what you... Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This is super important. And I think a lot of people, you know, bystander effect is is, is um, coming into play here. But I think more important is that your email to a group is not addressing specific value that you're going to bring to a person. And you may try to do that, but it's going to get lost when you have a super long email. Like nobody likes reading super long emails. So rather single thread, address it to one person and then say what the value is that they should have realized in that initial call or that they will realize with your product and what the next steps are that you need from them and do that on a one off basis. Yes, it takes more time, but yes, it's far more valuable. You give everybody an opportunity to ask you specific questions that are about them, how they're going to use your product, your solution, your your tool, whatever it is. And that's super important. If you ever find yourself writing an email that says, hey, team, or hey, all, I immediately you lose people. Address them by name. This is coming up in another law. And you're more likely to get their attention. And then you can guide them through the process, as we talked about before, on an individual basis as a co-member of that buying team, instead of trying to move an entire team at once. All right. This is an interesting one and probably not one that you would expect signing up for today's session, but you can actually use email engagement to forecast your deals. So it was uh, last year I was working with the research team and we were trying to find the number one signal if a deal was going to close. Now, been in sales long enough, usually you just trust your gut. You're like, I've worked enough deals. I know what good feels like, but that's really hard to scale if you're a sales leader and it's not very objective, right? It's very subjective. And so other times we might, uh, if you're in leadership, you might ask your reps, you might just slack them, tap them on the shoulder back when we were in the office, uh, or maybe check your CRM. And so what we wanted to do was find what an objective metric 
that we could look at and say, hey, what do healthy deals that are on track to sign look like? And what do losing deals look like? So that we can start to increase our deal predictability and increase our forecasting. And so what we came up with was email velocity, which is essentially the amount of emails sent back and forth between a buyer and a seller over the course of a week. Now it's different than email activity because email activity is one way. That's just how many times did I email? How much times did I email uh, Miriam, for example? But what this was looking for was the back and forth effect. And so over the course of a week, winning email, or excuse me, winning deals have about eight emails exchanged back and forth versus losing deals floated around two. And I don't know if we have a slide for, for, for the next one on the, the last week of a deal, but on the last week of a deal, it actually increases up to about 11 emails per week. And so Kyle, I, I laughed earlier, you said it was like 21,000% increase. This is the highest percentage I've ever published, which is 753%. But when you start at 1.8 and you compare it to anything, you're gonna get an, an, an enormous percentage. But really what you can do, whether you're uh, forecasting your own deals, I've been there a bunch of times where you're in that kind of uh, best case scenario. You're not really sure, like it could come in, but uh, I, don't, I don't really feel good telling my VP that this is definitely gonna come in. You can look at your accounts as you see the screenshot here, and those, those little circles are just uh, email activity. And you can look and say, hey, does this account look like a ghost town? And I'm kind of more in that hoping stage, hoping I get a really positive email. Or is it looking really good? We're, you know, we're interacting back and forth multiple times. And something to think about too, if you're like, how am I gonna email someone eight times in a week? Like back and forth, that might be a lot. That's on an account basis. So if you're multi-threading, if you're working with multiple people in that account, eight emails is really easy. That's only one email exchange for four people or you know, so on, you can do the math however you wanna break that down. But if you're working with multiple people, eight emails per week is actually quite easy. And again, I, I want to speak to the SDRs in the audience here. This, this same is true, although we don't have the data on it, um, but the same is true I've seen time and time and time again for pre-opportunity or pre-meeting, whatever you, you're creating for your reps. When you see an email that's getting a lot of engagement, when you see an account that are opening your emails, clicking your emails, doing those things, those are the most likely accounts that are going to turn into meetings and turn into opportunities. And the same thing is true here when you're forecasting deals. The more emails that are going back and forth, the more engaged they are, the more you're, you're doing a good job communicating value to those people, the more likely it is that your deal is going to close. So use the tools you have at your disposal to rejigger your priority list and ensure that you're focusing on the right accounts or the right opportunities at the right time based on engagement. You can see visually here when an account is heating up, like it's warming up or the, you know, you're getting email opens or clicking links or getting involved. That's when you know you're getting close. You're educating them and they're showing interest. And the same thing later in the sales cycle, you can see deals heating up with this interaction, right? Um, good question from Andrew. These are all a uh, majority, I would say about 95-ish percent of the uh, stats that we're showing are US-based. So they are pretty specific to North America. Um, again, I always advise testing these things for yourself, but I have to imagine a lot of these things aren't too culturally, culturally specific. They're a little more on the psychology side of things. So they should apply to most human beings because we're all relatively the same. You post, if you guys don't follow Kyle on LinkedIn, you definitely should. He posts, I think, every single day, maybe even on the weekends. Uh, just phenomenal tips. And this is something I know that you talk about all the time, which is making the email about them, them being the buyer. Yeah, 100%. Um, and we've, we've alluded to this before, but like... I'm sorry, everybody. I really don't care about you or your company. Like I'm trying to, I'm trying to do everything I can to make our company successful. 
And so when I see or receive an email or a LinkedIn message or a phone call or whatever it is, that's entirely about what you do or the, the, um, what your clients are doing or st statistics that you're proud of, but it doesn't really mention me. It doesn't translate to me. It's not about myself either as a person or a persona that you sell to. I'm not going to pay attention. And so the best way to get my attention is to, sh is to use these pronouns, you, you'll, your team. Those are the types of things that I know it sounds really small, but it makes a huge difference. So you can see the, the differences in the gray box and the, in the purple box. Um, it's not just about the anonymous set of users that are going to maximize their time. It's that you'll be more efficient. And that directness of that statement, it makes, it just stops me a little bit more. It's, it's less ambiguous and more specific about the value that I will realize. And so the little tweaks like this really do go a long way. It goes from sounding robotic to sounding much more personal. And I think that that is a, a really large reason for the success of these pronouns. Absolutely. If you think about it, even when you meet someone in person, like, you know, uh, I always think of like industry events, you know, you end up meeting a lot of people from a lot of different companies and it, the elevator pitches are often like, you know, we are the number one, this platform, we do this for our clients. And, you know, and it just feels like this very, like you said, ambiguous. It's like this third party that doesn't, it's not here. It's not there. I don't really know where they are, but it doesn't feel very personal to me versus when someone sends me an email and they're talking to you, to you, Kyle, to you, Devin, it naturally makes you kind of lean in because it feels like they know you because it is more personable. And so the other thing too, is to make it about them. I think a, another one of the biggest mistakes is people open up the email with, you know, hi, Devin, my name is Joe. I'm the SDR on this account. Our company is X and this is what we do. Now, by then I've, I will keep reading just to continue. It's like, you know, you, you can't help but finish a bad movie. Like, I just want to know how bad does this email go? But what I, what I think about is like, if you're sending that type of email, you're, you're not even looking for like a needle in a haystack. Like it's even smaller odds than that because the, what are the odds that that person you're sending it to are like, oh, perfect. That's like, this was on my like to-do list this week was to find this type of company. Like it's so small, it's not, it's never gonna happen. But if you can make it about them, you know, center around a problem, center around their team, you're more likely gonna get them uh, interested in listening as well. Simon yeah, says mystery helps, yeah. mystery is phenomenal. Is it, this is a huge thing. And, and another kind of a corollary to this law is avoid the word I or we as much as you can. So, and I know it sounds kind of strange, but literally like the smallest things, instead of saying, I saw that you just say, saw that you and avoid that word, word I as much as you can. Again, it makes a really big difference. I've tested this just so many times. I, I can't even tell you, like it increases open rates, it increases response rates. The sentiment that you get back from the person is just more positive. So avoid I, avoid we, avoid these general terms and make it specifically about them as a person or again, as a persona, if you don't have enough personalized research on them. One more thing on that, I think too, is, and someone put it in here, like, should I use the company name or should I say your, your team? I personally, when I'm reading, I know, and I think most people know, there's a little uh, dynamic field that's your company. And it's like, does this sound like something interesting at Gong? It's not bad, I wouldn't say, but it's not as personal as like, is this something, you know, you'd be interested in for your team? I know I work at Gong. I know you know I work at Gong. I don't think it's really adding, any, adding anything to say that, but to be more specific with uh, your, well, I guess it's actually less specific because you're not being, using a, you know, a data field. But yeah, I, I personally don't love seeing my company name or my personal name throughout the whole email. It feels like it's a dynamic field just plugged in there all the time.
Law number seven, and we kind of touched on it just now, is use words that sell. Now, before we flip the, the screen here, I'll give you a little background. This was a different report that we did. And I was curious as to what words do top sellers use to sell? You know, I'm an English major from college. I love linguistics. I kind of geek out on these things. But as we've been covering these things so far, you can start to see there's really subtle differences that can make a large impact. And so what I did with the Gong Labs team was we um, took a group of SMB and enterprise reps, which had top performers, and we had average and bottom performers. And we simply looked through and see, you know, between calls, uh, excuse me, on their emails, what type of language are they using? And what was really interesting is the words we looked for are very simple words. We joke around, you're not going to win Scrabble with these things. These aren't four or five syllable words. These are very, very conversational, casual words. So let's go ahead and flip the screen here and I'll show you what some of them are. Imagine is one of my favorites. So this is about half of the report. If you guys are interested, we have a full, a full list you can download. I love the word imagine, Kyle, because it, it naturally, I'm going to say the word forces, but it, it naturally pulls you really into visualizing something. So when someone's like, Devin, imagine never having to do that anymore. Super simple one. I'm immediately like, oh, that would be great. That would be phenomenal. I, I don't like that thing. Now that's a very lazy example, but there's tons of ways that you can say like, you know, position the problem, you know, why you and your email position the problem. And then I love to say, imagine that being gone and this new um, desired state being the case. And it naturally puts people in that realm. And then that's when I like to follow up with an interest ETA. Would you be interested in learning more about that? And it's like, yeah, that desired state sounds great because I'm already imagining it in my mind's eye. Part of the reason that I'm such a fan of Devin's is because he uses my name a lot over and over and over again. He, he's won me over that way. And I, and I know, again, these things, they sound so simple. They sound so silly, but it really does make a big difference when you are, are using their name in your emails, on the phone, in the voicemails. It makes things more personalized. You know, it, it, have you ever been at like a party? Obviously not in 2020, but uh, think back to a simpler time where you're at a party and you hear your name from across the room and your attention is immediately drawn to that. That's the effect that it has. Your, your body, your mind is trained to listen for that set of sounds that is your name. And so that's how you get people's attention. So yes, use their name as much as you can. Um, you know, you don't want to pepper it a million times through your emails, but just make sure that they know that you are writing to them. And if they can tell that by your use of their name, by your use of um, things that are valuable to them, their persona, whatever it may be, that is how you will sell better. Yeah. And so the, the next one here is, is use case verbiage. Now, verbiage isn't a word I would probably say too often, but I think it's applicable here. Um, Talking about the valuable tasks and jobs the product will help the customer do. I think it plays along with imagine as well, right? It could be things like achieving a strategic goal. It could be publishing more content. And so what it is, it's, it's using strong, um, strong verbs to really help people understand the outcome of what you are presenting or what, what the problem is that you're solving. People want outcomes. People don't care about the feature and how it works. People care about the outcome that they will get from that. And then and I'll, I'll take us home on decisive language as well, Kyle. Using decisive language. So remember, these aren't all just for cold emails, by the way. These are across, um, could, could include the sales cycle too. But what we found is they use more decisive language. Things like definitely, certainly, and we can do that. 
If you see a we phrase in there, that's okay. There's something you can never use a we phrase. It's just avoid it in cold emails. But what this does is kind of what we covered earlier when you're presenting, when you're leading people through a sales process and you're providing them with the next step and a time to do so, is you're showing that you're confident and you're knowledgeable by using this decisive language, right? No one wants to, you know, hey, hey, Kyle, does Clary integrate with Salesforce? Uh, maybe. Well, I think. Those are things that don't exude confidence. And so buyers want to be led. They want to know that they want to trust you. And so when you use these decisive languages, it really pays off. Don't be afraid to experiment with these things. Test it in your next email. Start using pronouns. Uh, start using these different CTAs and A-B testing. And by the end of a, a week, you should know, hey, this works better for me or this doesn't work better for me, right? You'll be better off for it. Using ROI language and time, asking for time and cold emails decreases your success rates. Instead, focus on interest and outcomes. Follow up immediately with each meeting participant after a group call. You'll get more responses, especially at groups three or more. And then focus on pronoun heavy emails and words that sell. If you've missed it, Nahal is in the chat right now. She's dropped the links where you can download 43 highly effective CTAs, as well as the words that sell cheat sheet. I believe we have our giveaway, if I remember the order of our slides correctly here. Oh, we've got a poll. Fantastic. Well, if you enjoyed today's presentation, if you're interested in having better email conversations and visibility across all of your team's interactions, as well as your pipeline, John can help. Shameless plug. If you enjoyed this, we can help you apply these things to your team. So go ahead and jump over to the polls. If you want to hang out with us, say yes, get you set up. If you're saying, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm not, not right now. That's fine. Or maybe you're somewhere on the fence. You're like, let me see that PDF first. I'll have to think about it. And we'll follow up with you accordingly. So you can answer that over into the polls. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this session. Uh, Kyle and I had a lot of had a lot of fun, and, and like I said, our, our goal is really to help other salespeople be as effective as possible. Um, so hope you enjoyed it. Everyone after this will get the recording. Everyone will get a list of the seven laws. And I know there's been a bunch of content in the chat as well. Now, if forecasting is a nightmare, if you're tired of hearing the word forecasting, if you just need more sales tech clary.com slash demo kyle will personally demo every single one of you i'm just kidding i can't sign him up for that but you guys can check it out and as i've said uh, gong's here as well to help you have better conversations and help with deal predictability make sure to follow gong on linkedin if you enjoy these sales stats if you want to see more of it we, we uh, publish them about once or twice a month and as i mentioned follow kyle and myself on linkedin both of us are continually putting out great sales content. If I may say it's great, you guys can decide if it's great. I think Kyle's great at the very least. Thanks again, Kyle, for joining me. Always a good time. Anything else you want to say before we, we head out? Just one final thanks Just to you, Kevin, thanks to, to the Gong team and to everybody who joined. Really appreciate it. So let us know if we can help you in any way. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.